dead. But there was a time where uh, he was in London, and London was very uh, crowded. It was going through a rough time, and this guy's church was just booming. Like, it was growing, 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 growing out of control. And uh, all of a sudden, this reporter goes to him and asks, man, why is your church growing so much? Like, what is the reason for your success? And while the service is going on, he takes the reporter and he walks her downstairs. And as he walks downstairs in the basement, there are about 20 people on their hands and knees just praying for the service. And he goes, this is what I call the boiler room of success for our church. It's just prayer. So prayer is so pivotal. It is so important. God says, ask of me things and look at how different the outcome really begins to happen. Prayer has to be at the very, very core of who we are. Prayer has to be at the very core of what we want to do as, as a follower of Jesus. And the book of Psalms is going to teach us exactly what to do with that. Now, here's a bit of an intro. Um, have you ever seen like a baby uh, try to speak the English language before, right? They're born, they come out, they have like massive heads, small bodies, and then um, they start trying to learn how to speak English. And it's like, they're just going like, blah, 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 and they start going crazy. Like they're actually holding a conversation with you and you're like, you're insane. You know what I mean? Like you're just like this little thing that's just like screaming out. Like it's almost like they're speaking in tongues. You know what I mean? Like it's like, what's going on here? And they actually think that they're holding a valid conversation. It's like, no. You're a baby, right? So that baby, what it begins to do is it looks at their parent and their parent begins to say words. And so the baby begins to see the words the parent is saying and they begin to, you know, move and shape their mouth the way that their parent does and move and say words kind of like similar. They try to imitate sounds and what they're doing is they are imitating the vocabulary of their parent in order that they can go and do the same thing, right? That's the whole way that a baby begins to learn how to speak. Now, what I would suggest is that we as followers of Jesus have to do the exact same thing in prayer. We have to sit there and we have to look at the way that the Father's words are coming out. And we have to see those and we have to try to shape the way that we pray and move and all the things that we try to do through prayer in the exact same manner. So how do we go and do that? We look at the Father's words. We look at the way that God expresses himself. And we just take that, we ingest it, and we reverse it back out. That's the whole point of what we're trying to do. That's why we chose the book of Psalms, because what is our Father's words? What are his words? The Bible. So first and foremost, what we got to do is we got to take this, we got to figure this out, we got to know it, and especially the Psalms, because it's like a book of prayer. All of these different authors from all these different places, especially David and the sons of Kor, all these guys are writing these Psalms as like laments and as joy, like every single way that you can feel in human life, they are feeling. And they're praying their whole way through it. So that's what we got to do. We got to ingest that, we got to feel that, we got to send that back out, and hopefully at the end of this whole series this summer, we begin to understand what the core of being a follower of Jesus is and how prayer really is going to change the way that we live. Cool? Okay, very quick, four minutes of an intro. So if you guys got Bibles, uh, go to Psalm chapter one. We are gonna be in uh, the first Psalm. It's gonna be six verses, pretty quick. Let me read those for you. And uh, this is what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Sounds a bit crazy. It'll make sense in a little second. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for, uh, for the students. We thank you that as we begin to go through these psalms, and we begin to really digest all of what they have to say, that when we speak these words out and when we pray to you in earnest, like an actual genuine appreciation of who you are, God, that you would hear us, that you would move in a, in a crazy way for our city, uh, for their schools, for, for our families, for our church body, that you would just be able to work in such a way that we feel like, man, you're listening and you're doing something. I pray that that would just be the the results of every single one of us as we're just on this journey of prayer, that you would move us and you would shape us as we pray. So Father, we thank you. We love you. Just want to pray. Amen. Psalm 1 is really interesting. Psalm 1 is uh, going to do something for us that's going to be very, very important. Psalm 1 is almost like kind of uh, the bouncer outside the restaurant, okay? It is going to open, it's like the doorkeeper. It's going to open the door or close the door for how we perceive everything else that's going to follow in the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 is the door, and it's going to give you a couple of options. Look at how it's describing itself. Uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Right off the bat, the first psalm gives you this idea, puts you at the fork in the road, and says you have two different options of how you want to approach this book. Whatever option you have completely determines the outcome of what everything else is going to do for you. Do you want to sit with scoffers? Do you want to stand with all of these uh, unrighteous and wicked people? Or do you want to go in such a way where you are meditating day and night? You are righteous. You are with God. You are a godly human being. Which way do you want to approach this? There's a decision that has to be made. And which way are you going to go? Um, this week, as uh, maybe some of you guys know, there was this, uh, there was this soccer team in Thailand. And... Uh, they're like a group of 10 to 12-year-old boys, and uh, they're Thailand uh, soccer coach. And literally, this dude is probably the most intense coach of all time, okay? Northern Thailand, uh, there is a monsoon going on, okay? And what does coach not do? Does not cancel practice at all. And what he makes them do instead of not canceling practice is he makes these 10 to 12-year-old boys from Thailand run on the beach during a monsoon, Okay, that is crazy. So you can imagine like these boys are just running and he's probably making them chant. Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> They're just running on this beach. And all of a sudden, uh, the water begins to rise a little bit. And they're like, coach, uh, you know, it's up, it's up to our ankles. You know, like we should, we should probably move a little bit inwards. And coach is like, no, nah, keep going. And uh, the water keeps rising. The water keeps rising. Now the coach begins to freak out, and they're like, uh, okay, we should probably move inwards. And as they're moving inwards, they're just basically up against rocks, and, and the water keeps on rising. Imagine this, this Thailandese soccer team of, great, of, of 10 to 12-year-old boys. So it keeps rising, keeps rising, keeps rising, and they find themselves caught. So what do all of these boys do? They run into a cave. They all just start running into a cave. And they just keep having the water rise, having the water rise. So what do they do? They go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into this cave. This made international media that this Thailand soccer team disappeared for two weeks. No one knew where they were. And it's monsoon season, which means the water is not going to go down 
for four months. Four months, it's not going down. And they're stuck in a cave, okay? So these divers, like they're basically like the Navy SEALs of Thailand, all of a sudden go, all right, let's get these boys. They have no idea where they are. They're completely lost. They can't rescue them because they don't know where they are. And they're chilling in a cave. So randomly, this one diver is like, all right, let me check this cave because, I don't know, that's where boys might hang out. And he begins to dive into this cave, like hardcore diving, scuba gear, the whole shebang with like the air thing on his back. He gets to the end of this cave. And what does he find? Twelve boys hanging out in a cave with their coats. And they're just hanging out in a cave, chilling. Now, I thought to myself here in a second, and I go, you know what would be the worst thing? It'd be the worst thing if you, like, really sucked at soccer and you were stuck in that cave. Like, really? I'm never going to go anywhere. I barely even play. I ride the bench, and now I'm in a cave. Like, what the heck? You know what I mean? And so now the Thailand government is stuck in this really awkward spot because they're going, what do we do? Like, imagine this peril. They're stuck in this decision currently in this moment. They are deciding whether to train 10 to 12-year-old boys how to do the most intense scuba diving in the history of the world or leave them in a cave for four months. Guys, what is that? Could you imagine as a 10-year-old, you're sitting in this cave and they go, all right, you could either scuba, which means your lungs might explode halfway through. Oh, that's appealing, okay. Uh, or you could hang out in this cave. Sounds great. For four months. Well, we're really going to bond, right? <laughs> what it, the options are not very good. One is like a for sure, you're going to hate your whole life. Like some of us are bored sitting at home during summer. You know that whole thing that happens like halfway through summer, you're like, oh, I'm so happy I'm done school. And then halfway through, you're like, I hate everything. I just want to see my friends. You know what I mean? They're stuck in a cave, man, for four months. This is a really tough decision. This is a difficult spot. Do we take them? Do we teach them how to do crazy army scuba stuff? Or do we keep them in the cave? It's a decision. They're put in a spot where they have to make a choice. And this choice is about life and death. You see what I'm getting at? The choice is very important, but the choice is life and death. See, Psalm 1 does the exact same thing. It puts you into a spot where it says, hey, listen, here are your two options. And the choice is life and death. Do you want to be somebody who sits with the kind of people whose allegiance is away from Jesus and away from God? Or do you want to be the kind of person who spends their allegiance with the people who really, really know him? That's the question. That's the way this whole thing is set up. Now, it's really interesting when you begin to compare the words of Psalm 1. Look at how it starts off with like a bunch of different negatives. Look at verse 1. It says this. Blessed is the man who walks, okay, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You see that progression there? Walks, stands, sits. See, the New Testament, all of its language when it talks about followers of Jesus is follow. What does that mean? It's, it's, that's movement. It says go up and rise. It says go and make disciples. All of, the, all of the motions in the New Testament is something about going forward, taking momentum and movement and using that for the glory of God. Psalm 1 does the opposite. It begins to slow you down. 
Right, what do you do? You start off by walking, and then you start by standing, and then you take a seat. It slows you down in life. We probably have all kind of heard these stories, the stories of people who've kind of gone sideways in life, and you're going like, man, you were going somewhere. What happened? And it kind of seems like they've just stalled out in life. They didn't really do anything. They've kind of stopped, and you're sitting there questioning, going like, what is happening with them? That's what the Bible is describing. It's saying, man, you went from moving, and all of a sudden you've slowed down in such a way that things have really not gone the way that, that wisdom is pushing you towards. Now, this is really interesting. Uh, look at all the words here. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Counsel, way, and seat draw you to the attention of a couple different things. It, it draws you to the attention of thinking. It draws you to the attention of behaving. It draws you to the attention of belonging, thinking, behaving, belonging. And those are the three things that are going to determine your fundamental allegiance to where you want to give your life to. Is it Jesus or is it something else? This is the decision that Psalm 1 offers to you. What are you going to do? And it's just pushing it right into your face. What do you want to do? How are you going to think? How are you going to behave? How are you going to belong? Uh, this is a guy named Alexander Pope. And uh, I think the way that he describes the way we interact with sin, with, with sin is really important. And uh, it's kind of interesting the way we think about it. And you in high school are going to know this right away. This is what he says. Uh, sin is a monster of so fright, uh, frightful mean as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. This is the whole idea. Is when you're in a sinful situation, a situation where God, you know clearly God does not want you to do something. And you're kind of sitting there going, I think that's kind of like a bad idea. I'm not, I'm not really sure about it. The first step that you do when you're entering into a sin problem is you just, you look at it. You just look at it. Think about all the different kind of gnarly stuff that you've gotten yourself into. The very first thing is just exposure. You just see it for the very first time. And then you begin to see it more often. Right? Let's, let's just take the example of uh, like drinking. Okay, you go to a party, you're there, you're going to kind of stand your, stand your ground. No, I'm not going to, whatever. And you kind of just see people doing it. And you're like, no, I'm still not into it. And, and then the next party comes and the next party comes, the next party comes and you become a little bit more fatigued. There's less of a fight for you. And you're like, yeah, you know, everyone just kind of does it. And, and it becomes normalized. And then you sit there and you're like, ah, you know what, maybe it's not that bad. Like, I haven't really had a bad opportunity or, or, or a bad situation come up. And then you begin to kind of pity the situation. Oh, it's not really that, that bad of a thing. And then you begin to go, okay, why not? Isn't that true? You just begin to see something and you see it too often. And then you're like, ah, oh, it's not actually that bad of an idea. And okay, then I'm just going to go into it. That's how sin kind of works. It begins to slow you down in the way that you think about things. What do you think about? What are your thoughts primarily on? I'm um, reading this guy, his name is Brother Lawrence, and he says, man, if I was a preacher, all I would ever want to do is just talk about the presence of God. A very simple question that you could ask yourself is how often in the day do I even think about God? How often in the day do I think about him compared to all of the rest of the stuff that racks my brain? 
man, I'm thinking about money. Like, I really need to get a job. I really need to get all these different things. Or, or maybe it's friendship. Maybe you're stuck in this idea of like, so-and-so, can't, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they're going there. Why aren't they being my friend, blah, blah, blah. And you have all of these different ideas. Now, the problem is sometimes we trick ourselves. We like to say, man, oh, no, Jesus, like, whoo, man, you're my number one, Right? When difficult situations, like we know all the jargon to say to people who are in a rough situation, brother, let the spirit just anoint you with love, you know? We have all the hand signals for worship when they come up. Like when ocean goes on, we know every word, you know? We know exactly when to put up our hands, right? Lead me into still waters, Mm. right? We all have our own thing, small TV, big TV, right? The YMCA worship hands. We got the field goal worship hands. And my favorite, the window washer. You know what I mean? Like we all have our different things of how to play the game. We know how to do it. We've been in this long enough where we know that all we have to do is kind of put an external outward appearance and people will think, man, you're good. You're awesome. There's no problem for you. That's exactly what I think he's talking about. It's putting on a mask. It's putting on a face saying one thing and not really feeling it for what it is and kind of just sitting there a little bit lost. Uh, there's this pastor in New York and he's, uh, he was talking about this story. This is actually really fascinating. It's this girl goes into his office and begins to talk about her life and parents are really worried about her. So he sits down, he's like, hey, what's going on? And, and uh, she begins to explain, you know what? It's, it's not the church or it's not like God or whatever because I look at, I look at God and I know, he, I know he loves me. It's not like Jesus, like I know he saved me. I know, I know I'm going to be saved. I'm going to be with him forever. I'm going to be glorified with him. Like she begins to use all of these like really fancy technical Christian words that we all like to, like to use sometimes. I know I'm going to be glorified. I know I'm going to be saved. I know he's sanctifying me, another technical Christian word that we like to throw around. She goes, I know I, I, know I have all of those things, but what's the point if a boy won't even look at me at school? What's the point? I think what the writer of the book of Psalms would say is, man, I think you just found out where your true allegiance was. I think like you thought you said that you knew all of those different things, but like if you really knew it, like if you really knew God's love, this thing's not that big of a problem anymore. Like sure, it can be a problem, but it's not an ultimate problem. It's not you questioning your whole life or you thinking, why does nobody care about me or my value is completely decreased because someone doesn't want to look at me in, in some way. No, no, no. If you, if you know God's love, like if you really know it in the core of who you are and you realize that your allegiance is to him, some of these things might sting. Yeah, that person doesn't want to care about me or, or I had a difficult fight and that hurts, but it's not going to ruin me. Man, I've been in times where I've had situations where even, even romance, you know what I mean? I... Uh, I always talk about how me and uh, Leisha's relationship growing up was, was pretty rough, right? She tried to ruin my life a couple times. And, uh, and I would sit there and, man, like I was like that little girl, you know? Like I'm not a, I'm not a little girl, like you know what I mean, right? So I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, you know, I talk about how the two guys came to a volleyball team and they basically saved me via chicken nuggets and worship. And uh, those two guys would have to sit there like week after week sitting at McDonald's and just me going like, bro, like she texts me every day but doesn't say that she wants to be with me for life. Like, what the heck? And I'm just, like, vomiting out my emotional, like, ninth grade problems to these guys. And they're like, dude, it's okay, man. Like, the Lord has a plan. I'm like, this plan sucks. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sitting there in that spot. 
And I'm having this difficulty, and in that moment, I'm like, dude, I know God loves me. I know he saved me. I know I'm going to be with him forever, but what's the point if I know this girl doesn't even care about me? And some of you have the same issue. Man, I know God loves me. I know he cares for me. I know I'm supposed to be reading his Bible, but what's the point if so-and-so doesn't want to be my friend? And I know God loves me. I know he cares for me. I know he wants to do all of these amazing things, and he has these promises, but why does it matter if no one ever feels like they want to be a part of my life? Those are real issues. Those are real things. I'm not trying to diminish any of those. Those are, those are big problems. But the question I'm really asking is really like, where is your allegiance? What's going to get you through life? Like, think about that question. What's going to get you through life? Is that one friendship that you get with that one person who you've been dying to get to know, that friendship going to keep you through life? Because what if they move away one day? Aren't you going to be just as ruined? Or what if, what if the thing that's going to get you through life is a relationship and you really dig into this relationship, man? Oh, we watch Netflix like all the time. We're so cute. I hold our hands interdigits. You know what I mean? Like we're deep into this. We're deep into this. Oh, she's the love of my life. And then she moves away. What happens? What's going to get you through life? Relationship? What about validation? You know, we talk about this often. When someone gives you a compliment and you're like, whew, I got a bit of a swagger, and then somebody criticizes you and you just keep thinking about it for days. Is that, is that what's going to keep you going? Just people saying nice things day after day after day after day. What is going to get you through life? I think that's the question that this is posing. Where's your true allegiance? Where do you really find yourself going through life and saying, man, like this is actually what's going to get me through. Now, I come from a position, and uh, to be really honest with you, man, like I am the number one leader of insecurity. Like, so bad. I question myself every four seconds, you know. I try to at least throw myself a pity party and schedule it once a week. Like, that's where I'm at right now in life, and I've always been like that. And maybe you guys are way better than me. I don't know. Probably you seem holy, whatever, right? But I'm not. I, I am racked with insecurity all the time. I ask myself the question, man, should I even be leading this? Am I a good husband? Am I a good, like, Christian? Like, all of these ideas at times begin to throw into my mind. These, these weird doubts and these weird insecurities, and this happens all the time. And it used to be way worse. It used to be the way that I couldn't sleep at night. It used to be in such a way where I would sit and I would question myself. And you know the prodigal son story where the one son is kind of like this uh, reckless individual who kind of just spends all his money doing something crazy. And there's the older brother who's this like righteous, like murk kind of dude. Um, I was like the murk kind of dude. And I would sit there and I'd go, why is my heart this way? And it would like break. And I would sit there and go like, man, I, I can't believe that I'm this kind of individual. I would sit there and I would destroy myself. I wasn't hurting myself physically. I wasn't destroying relationships. But like mentally, I was wrecking myself. Maybe you're in that spot. And the beauty of God's grace and the beauty of what he does with us and the community that he brings around us is that he begins to be the kind of individual where gradually and slowly he changes you. He moves you. And as that began to happen, as I began to worry less about things, as anxiety was no longer an issue or a problem, as life began to kind of speed up and all of a sudden I found like I was getting a bit of traction, I began to recognize, man, what's really going to get me through life? 
is comfort and no issues and no worrying gonna get me through life? Is me just feeling like I have all the money in the world gonna get me through life? Is me having all the attention or the success of what church looks like, is that gonna get me through life? Or is really the only foundation of who I am as an individual who's a human being at the very core who loves Jesus, is that gonna be the thing that gets me through life? And over time and over everything, I've said to myself, that has to be the idea. That has to be the singular thing. We often chase these things in life all the time. Think about this. Money, success, wealth, comfort, all of these ideas where I just want to have that thing. Man, I was at a, I was at a camp this weekend and a guy showed up. I had to text, actually, I had to text Andy about this because it was blowing my mind. A dude showed up, one of the leaders, with Gucci slacks, um, off-white Nikes, and Yeezys. And he showed up. He was a leader, just showed up. And I was like, how much money and how many people did you kill for these things? You know what I mean? He's like, oh, I got a raffle. I'm like, you're a dirty liar, right? Like, you didn't raffle these three. And I'm sitting there, and I'm watching his behavior. I'm just kind of seeing him walking around, and every opportunity he took, every opportunity he took to draw people's attention to his things, every opportunity he took was to draw the attention of other people to the very things that he thought were going to be the most prominent and most important things about his life. Isn't that a crazy thing? Just drawing people's attention to something. What do you draw people's attention to? What do you push people towards? What do you make other people think about when they're around you? Isn't that crazy? What do we draw people's attention to? I would love to say that every single day I'm like Jesus, you know, like, oh, I go to McDonald's, I get myself some chicken nugs, and by the time we're gone, the cashier is thinking about the Lord, you know? Like, I would like to think that way. But there are some dudes who really are like that. Uh, there's a guy who uh, was working at the church. His dad was an evangelist, okay? He was an evangelist. And he said, growing up, I would hate going to restaurants and drive-ins with my dad because every single time we were in the drive-thru for 10 minutes and he was making the cashier repent during the thing, like literally crying, like, here's your fries. The Lord has broken me, right? And we're like, what the heck's going on? But I'm looking at that. And I'm like, I would never want to be that guy, but I totally want to be that guy. You know what I mean? Where I just walk up to someone, like I just go up to Eli and I'm like, hey man, how you doing? He's like, the Lord has, like, I want to be that dude, you know? And I'm not. And I just sit there and I ask myself these questions, like, man, what am I thinking about? What is my mind racked on? Is it just the next movie or is it what am I doing the next day? Am I just stuck in my schedule, my calendar, right? Because everybody thinks that to be a Christian, it's a calendar and a journal and you're good, right? Is that where my mind is at all the time? It's just a calendar. Man, my life is caught up in the meetings and the schedules of my days. Like, is that what my mind is really thinking about? Or is my mind in constant awareness of what God is doing with the people next to me? I think at times we do not see the quality of life that people have around us. Let's just think about that for a second. You know how many people live under the poverty line in our city? You know how people live under the poverty line that probably go to your school? And you can be one single individual because their allegiance and the foundation of their heart is with Jesus, that you can make a difference. Just one little thing, one tiny little idea. I've told this story a bajillion times here, but it's worth it every single time. If you are someone 
who sits here and says, I cannot do that because I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't pray enough. I haven't read as much as I should. I haven't been as devoted as I can. God is not asking the world of you, but he is asking of something. He's not asking for mountains and the most amazing speech or argument, but he's asking for something. And you know what something could be? My friend Kenesha showing up to church because somebody bet her in a bowling game that she lost and made her go to church. So she showed up the first time and the worship was awesome and everybody was so friendly and she was questioning everybody around like, why are you like this? Why are you like this? Why are you so happy? And she was so confused because her life was not like that. It was abandonment. It was abuse. Nobody cared about her loneliness. She shows up to this place and feels like, wow, this is finally somewhere that I belong. I'm thinking about all these people and I'm questioning why are they doing what they're doing. I'm looking at their behavior and, and it's, 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 it's making me question my own life. And then they make me feel like I want to be a part of it. Thinking, behaving, belonging, all of those things happen to her. So she goes back the next week and somebody asks her after she's been here for years, years, a leader, somebody on the leadership team of the church, which started in the ninth grade that she showed up in, Somebody asked her, why did you keep going to church? And she, she said, because I came back the second week and the greeter from the week before saw me and they remembered my name. Remembered my name. Guys, I know some of you are not the smartest people in the world. All right, I've seen it firsthand, right? I've seen it. Brayden couldn't play Kahoot for squat. You know what I mean? Like, I've seen this. I'm just kidding. But guys, guys, let's be, let's be completely honest. You can smile. You can give a high five. And you can remember a name. If those are the three basic things that you can do as a human being, you can be used by God. I want you to believe that. That the way that this talks about life, this, the way that this talks about prayer, first and foremost, this is what we're talking about, right? So let's bring it back. The way this is talking about prayer is because it's asking the question before you get into any other things about the book, where is your allegiance? Where is your allegiance? What is your momentum? How do you think, how do you behave, and where do you belong? Those are the five questions that I think we need to ask ourselves. Where is our allegiance? And I hope that we could all answer, man, my allegiance is with Jesus, the one who died for me on a cross, the one who gave everything he possibly could. Okay, what's your movement like? Man, I just want to keep moving forward. Paul has this beautiful line. I don't do everything perfectly. I don't do everything amazing, but you know what I do? I strive forward and I press on towards the goal. It's movement forward. It's not this slowing down, walking, standing, sitting. And what are we thinking about? I hope that we can just start maybe, I don't know, 10 seconds a day, something as simple as that, just thinking about Jesus. And then how do we behave? People who have allegiance to Jesus, who love and care for the people who are around us, for our neighbors, like our actual neighbors, that we care for them. The people at our school who are annoying, we love those people. And where do we belong? We belong at the best church in the world, the Church of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about village. I'm not talking about PCC. 
I'm not talking about any of the local churches. Like, we belong to the church. Big C, beautiful church. That's where you belong. And so what does that make you? That makes you a child of the living God. So what's going to keep me going through life? Wealth? Nah. Fame? I don't think so. Being a pastor with a fashion deal? I wish, you know. I can't pull it off. I don't have the jawline for it. You know what I mean? I don't think any of those things are going to be it. Jim Carrey, you know Jim Carrey, the mask? Uh, he, uh, he has this famous line where he says, I wish everybody could have all the money in the world they wanted, all the fame and all the success, and when they get there, they can finally understand that it was never worth it. So what's going to keep you going through life? For me, what I found in my life and what makes me the most joyous in the times that I'm so disappointed in myself and the times that I am not feeling the most excited, the times when I'm not most happy is just being with the Lord. And I've realized just in the time that I've been doing it, there's no other place I'd rather be than with him. Because what's going to keep me going through? Understanding I'm a child of God. And Jesus gave everything he possibly could to have me in relationship with him. And no one, no one has ever and will ever do more for me than that. So where's your allegiance? What's your momentum like? What do you think about? How do you behave? And ultimately, where do you belong? These are the questions I think we got to ask ourselves. And this is what's really going to intro us as we begin our whole season and learning about prayer is the answer to some of those questions and realizing what to do with it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for life. We thank you that we get to uh, be the kind of people that enjoy every second of our life, that we get to be the kinds of people who are constantly looking at the people around us and are encouraged and, and, just, and just love the fact that we get to be here, um, that we get to spend time in worship, that we get to, to spend time in just your presence, that we'd allow ourselves to just be so known by you. Like I think at times we, we really try to hold back and we turtle down. And God, I pray that you would just make a massive transformation in us and change in us, that you would move us in a beautiful way into more of the image of Jesus. That we could just care for people even through the summer and we're bored out of our minds, that we wouldn't just like yell at people on Fortnite or whatever. Like we'd care, you know, we'd be nice. We'd appreciate others. We'd be nice to our family. We would allow us to be just really changed by the fact that we have an allegiance to you and that the way that we think changes, the way that we behave moves, and the way that we belong to this kind of a community would just be so beautiful. So, Father, we thank you for all of these things. We hope that you can just do a lot through us and that you would change us through the process. So, Father, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, I want to pray. Amen.